Hey, so we're starting a new series, and it's just a two-week series, and I want to give you a little bit of an explanation for how and why this series has come about. When we first moved into this building, we came to this building on this strip of land next to the building that is still there, but the business that was there right over here to our south, the um, gentleman's club, strip club, and the adult bookstore. And when we moved into this building, I had an idea. I had an idea of doing a new church plant. Some of you know that I, my family and I moved here to Lafayette and we planted this church originally. We started from scratch and uh, that was 16 years ago. And when we moved into this building, I kind of had an itch to do it again. Okay, But I like you people too much, and I liked Lafayette too much at the time to think about going anywhere else and planting a church. And so I was thinking to myself, what, what could we do? I kind of had that itch a little bit. And I had this, what I thought at the time was a brilliant idea. What we do is we start an alternate worship gathering time for all the people who can't or don't want to come to church on a Sunday morning. Let's start an alternate time, whether that's a Saturday evening or a Tuesday evening or something. Just some time for people who might find it difficult to be at church on a Sunday morning. And I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if somehow we could do a play on the name of the church or the building outside? You know, the number is on the side of the building. And I thought, wait a minute, what, what biblical reference could there be for 2301 Concord? Are there any biblical references to grapes that involve 23? No, I couldn't find a, a 23 grapes kind of thing. And so as I'm thinking about it, all of a sudden, like the light bulb came off in my mind and I was like, Psalm 23, verse one. It's one of the most profound, one of the most important verses in scripture because it's one of the most difficult for us to embrace, even though it's one of the most common ones for us to say. People who aren't Christians never go to church. They still know Psalm 23 by its first verse. I'm going to read in a few moments the whole thing in the King James Version because that's the one that people are most familiar with. But if you translate it into normal English, it says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And I thought, wouldn't it be awesome to start a whole kind of separate ministry under the umbrella of this church ministry, specifically focused on people who have a spiritual need that they're aware of, to give them this promise, the Lord can be my shepherd, and with him I can lack nothing. I knew that there were people who came to this part of the city looking for something. You know, that's why they would go to this building over here, because they were looking for something. And I wanted them to find it with Jesus. And so I was like, let's, let's start a whole new ministry. We'll call it PS 23 or PS 2301 or 2301. Just come up with something like that. And the whole theme will be Psalm 23. I shared it with a couple people and they were like, I don't want to do all that work. And so then we just never did it. And I didn't want to do that much work either. So it just, it just never happened. But that means that in this whole time that we've been in this building, there's kind of been an itch burning in my soul that I really need to spend some time on Psalm 23 with all of you. And so we're going to spend two weeks on Psalm 23, kind of. Today, we're going to talk about Psalm 23. I'm going to walk you through it beginning to end. Next week, we're going to talk about the meaning of Psalm 23 from a different angle. And the whole thing comes under the umbrella of understanding your good shepherd. 
You see, the other thing that's going on in the life of our church is that uh, my family's moving away at the end of December. We made that announcement last week. We're moving away at the end of December, and, uh, you know, all the things are in place. The house is on the market. We've got another place uh, already set up for us, ready to move into in Upland, Indiana. The, The ball is rolling down the hill, and the momentum is going. And I thought to myself, okay, When I left Chicago 17 years ago, when I left that church, I spent my last couple of months with them just hammering home what I thought a church should be. I went into the book of Nehemiah, and I was like, this is a church under construction, like they were building a wall in Nehemiah, and I'm like, this is a church under construction. I just was hammering home. And believe you me, at that point in time, I had kind of a chip on my shoulder for that church, and so I was kind of giving them sort of my parting words, if you know what I mean. As I'm heading out the door, go ahead and step on some toes because they can't chase you down, you know, that kind of a thing. And I was like, I don't really want to do that for you guys because as a matter of fact, I just did. You might not have been aware of this, but the whole previous series that I just taught through, the one thing, I started every one of the messages with, if this is the last message you ever hear me say, or, or if I only had one message for you guys to remember from me, it would be, and so that whole series was me kind of giving my swan song messages here. And so what I, I did all that because I wanted to end our journey together, my journey with you. I wanted to end this sort of phase of our ministry life together with encouragement. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next six weeks. I want to give you all of the encouragement we can muster from the Bible. Our series during the month of Christmas is going to be about how Jesus turns all things new and how Jesus is the one that you trust when things are changing because he's the one who takes the old and makes it new. He changes everything, and he is the one that you hang on to in the midst of those transitions. Even if you wanted a king and you got a baby in a manger, that's still the answer that you need, and so you hang on to Jesus, and he takes you through those transitions. But we have two weeks that aren't Christmas, and that's this week and next week. And I want to linger with you in Psalm 23 because I want you to get this clear sense that you lack nothing. On top of it, the word pastor, I know there's been, of course, concern. We're going to go through a pastoral transition. Eventually, this church is going to have a pastoral search committee, and then there will be a pastoral candidate who comes in that then you vote on whether or not that person's going to be your next pastor. And you need to know that the word pastor comes from the Latin word shepherd. And what you need to know, what we all need to know, is who the real shepherd is. We have a good shepherd. And as they say on the Allstate commercials, you're in good hands. It's just, you know, not with an insurance company. It's with the shepherd. And so I want to walk you through, I want to take you into this. Psalm 23 was written by David. David, you know David. He's the guy who walked up to Goliath without a sword. He's the guy who said he would fight Goliath and they gave him a bunch of armor and he said, I don't need armor. I didn't come here with armor. I don't need you to give me any armor. I didn't come here with a sword. I don't need you to give me a sword. I've got God on my side. I'm good. I lack nothing. And he stands before Goliath. He takes down the giant and then he kills Goliath with Goliath's own sword. David is the guy who understands I lack nothing, even when he's facing a literal giant. 
And he writes these words. It's a Psalm of David. This is it in the King James Version, the way you've heard it at funerals and other events in your life, I'm sure. It says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe the F's and the S's at the end of the words kind of throw you for a loop. But there's this beautiful poetry in there of a shepherd caring for the sheep. And so I want to walk you through it, phrase by phrase, to point out just some of the things that God is trying to give to you and some of the ways that we're resistant to receive it. It starts in verse 23, verse 1. It starts, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. When I was a kid, of course, I learned it in the King James Version. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And I heard shall not want in the same way that the Ten Commandments say, you shall not lie. You shall not commit murder. And so when I was a kid, the way I always heard this verse was, the Lord is my shepherd. Don't you dare want And I'm like, but I want lots of things. And so I could just feel the verse pressing down on me. The verse with this oppressive sort of, don't you dare ever desire anything, you sinful little child. Don't you dare ever desire anything. That God is your shepherd. Don't want anything. You shall not want. And I didn't realize when I was a kid the word want back in the King James day means something completely different than the word want in our day today. The word want today means desire. I want something. I desire something. I would like that thing to be added to my life. But the word want back in the King James day meant what comes before you desire. The thing that comes before you desire is you don't have. Want is the word for I don't have. In other words, the modern translation is far more accurate with the original Hebrew language that this was written in. God, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing, says the verse. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down because it's profoundly confusing. With God as my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now, there are lots of times in our lives where we feel like we lack stuff, right? We live in a society that is built on consumeristic desire. And we are told repeatedly that here's a thing you don't have, so go out and buy it. Just the other day, I cannot believe I saw this. I was filling up my tank with gas. And there was one of these ads right on the gas machine, you know, the gas pump. That's what they're called. I was feeling, it was, there's this ad right there on the gas pump. And I could not believe my eyes. It was an ad that had, um, what is it, Pepsid AC, it, an antacid of some kind, and Pepto-Bismol, and Prilosec, a whole bunch of like antacids and digestive aids all together on the one little picture. 
And then underneath it, it said something like, ready for the holidays. And then on the other side, it had a little phrase that said, I kid you not, it said, go ahead, have another plate. And I'm like, oh my goodness, the whole advertisement is because Pepsi, because Pepto-Bismol exists in the world. Go ahead and stuff your face. Because when you get sick of the food, you can then solve your problem with Pepto-Bismol. And I couldn't believe that they were so brazen and just so upfront with such a, such a consumeristic, you don't need this, but go ahead anyway idea. That's the world we live in. And yet the scripture says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Uh, Friday, Jen and I went out to our house uh, in Upland because we need to paint and we need to get some stuff set up for us to move there. And after we got there, um, we had just gotten a mattress. It had just arrived in the mail. And, you know, so we unrolled one of these, you know, vacuum sealed mattresses and it's doing its thing and it's, it's inflating itself. And so the mattress is set up in the one room and nothing else is in there. We got no furniture, but there's just a mattress. And so we're, we're doing some other stuff talking and all of a sudden I'm like, um, Jen, did we forget the pillows? And she goes, yes, we did. And so we're supposed to be spending the night out there on Friday night, and we've got no pillows. But it just so happens we have these super fluffy down blankets that we had brought there like a couple weeks before. Crazy fluffy down blankets. Here's the thing. You didn't have a pillow, but you don't need a pillow because God had already provided the, the fluffy blankets. Uh, we, when my son went to college, we decided we needed to have another car because he was taking the car um, to college. And so my daughter, Kate, needed something to drive around town. She wanted to get a job. She was still in high school. So we had at least three years where that car was going to be gone and we needed a, another one. So I found I wanted to get a Volvo because I wanted my daughter to be in a tank where every time she drove around anywhere, she would just be locked up inside some metal tank, you know, that would keep her as safe as could humanly be done. We couldn't find a Volvo for a reasonable, reasonable price, but I found a Subaru in Joliet, Illinois. And so one night we drove up as a family out to Joliet, and I saw this Subaru, and this guy was selling it for X number of dollars, and I offered him X minus Y number of dollars. And he's like, okay, we'll do that. And so we bought this Subaru, and uh, we did a little test drive, and I noticed when we test drove it that the brakes were a little bit soft and I also noticed that when you turned sharply the car made a <coughs> sound which ordinarily ordinarily might scare you away but this is a Subaru I know Subarus are four-wheel drive cars all-wheel drive cars and it sounded like when four wheels are kind of locked together a little bit and if you don't turn the wheel too far it didn't make the grindy crunchy sound and so it was fine so we got it we drove it home and on the way home the brakes went out but I, that's okay. There's still a handbrake, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I'm lacking nothing. There's still a handbrake. So I'm, I make it the rest of the way home just using the handbrake. We take it to a guy. He fixed the brakes, fixes the brakes for us. It's all fine and dandy, but the car still makes that grinding noise when you turn it. And so I take it to a shop and the guy says, okay, I tell you what, it's going to cost you $300 for me to do this procedure on your car, but I can't guarantee it's going to work. And I'm like, well, what good is that then? And so then he said, well, you could take it to Subaru. They've got this other procedure. I called them there. It's like it's $700 to, to take it here and do this thing, but we can't really guarantee it'll work. And I'm like, what are you talking about? How can you not guarantee it's going to work with this thing? So I, I call this other guy who says, I know another guy 
So I'm going, I'm three, three chains into the I know a guy. I get to the third link in the chain and the guy says, oh yeah, there's like this fuse that if you stick it in one of the fuse holes in the car, it goes away. The problem goes away. I'm like, what? I do a little bit of searching online. Turns out some of you who might know Subarus in this town, because of course the car that we were driving around was built here in Lafayette. Some of you know Subarus and you might know this. Maybe you didn't know this, but you can turn an all-wheel drive Subaru into a front-wheel drive car. And the only thing you have to do is put a fuse into the empty fuse slot that's in the fuse box. All the other fuse slots are filled, but there's one slot that's empty. And if you put a fuse in that fuse slot, you could put a penny in that slot. It's fine. It doesn't even send electricity through it, really. You just put something in that little fuse slot, and boom, it's a two-wheel drive car. It's a front-wheel drive car. And lo and behold, the extra fuse was already in the box. So I didn't even have to buy a new fuse. So I go out to the car. I find the extra fuse. I put it in the thing. I drive it around the neighborhood. No crunching, no grinding, nothing wrong with it. And it's peppier. And according to the reports online, it gets better gas mileage too. I'm like, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. So we just sold the car. And that guy has to deal with the crunching because it started coming back. But I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about it. He said he was mechanical. And so I'm letting him take care of all that stuff. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. What I'm trying to say is there are lots of times in our lives when we get hung up on the want. I don't have this thing. I should have this thing. And that scripture tells us when God is your shepherd, you lack nothing. That means if you have a need, God has already provided Or if not, he will soon provide. And if you don't have, you don't need. If God has brought something into your life, it's because it meets a need. And if you don't receive something, if God doesn't bring something into your life, it means you don't need that thing. See, we spend so much of our energy thinking about what I have and what I don't. And that turns us into viewing God like a vending machine. God, here's a thing that I need, and I don't have it. You have to bring it to me. Jen and I could have prayed all afternoon for God to miraculously bring some pillows to the house. I could have prayed all the time being like, God, would you just magically fix this car so I don't have to spend $300 or $700 on it? But all the time, the thing, the resource, the thing that would meet the need was already available. Because I believe God loves you that way. And I believe God wants to meet your needs in these things. And so what I want to do is I want to just keep going and find out, well, how? How does God provide for us? How can David tell us that he lacks nothing? What is it that God has provided for David? Let's take a look at it. In verse 2 through the first half of verse A, we see this. David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. I I like the King James Version, he restores my soul, but refresh is actually a better word anyway. Because it's not like my soul has been destroyed and it needs to be rebuilt. It's like my soul is drying out and it needs to be enlivened again. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. You know, one of the weird things about this passage is that uh, David was a shepherd, and he's now referring to God as his shepherd. And if he's doing that, that means that David is also recognizing that he himself is a sheep. Right? If God is the shepherd, David, is, the writer, is a sheep. Even though he should think of himself as a shepherd in charge of all these other sheep, he chooses to think of himself as a sheep. Now, of course, you know the mythology around sheep. The mythology is, I don't know this from personal experience because I've never dealt with sheep, but the mythology is they're dumb. I mean, they're like so dumb. Like lemmings might choose to go over a cliff because they're following another lemming, as is the mythology. It's also not true. But sheep will walk off a cliff just because they're not smart enough to realize it's a cliff. They'll just go straight over that thing. It's just like la di da di da di da whoop, and they're gone. Sheep are dumb animals. And the fact that David would call himself a sheep compared to God is one thing that just fascinates me to no end. But this is the thing that I think gets me the most. When David talks about how God is leading him, he specifically says, he makes me lie down. Did you pick up on that? He makes me lie down in green pastures. If I were a sheep and I had come upon a green pasture, you know what I'd be doing? I'd be having another plate. I'd be going to town on that grass. I'm like, look at this place. The opportunity is amazing. It's everywhere. I could just eat and eat and eat and eat. And maybe there's Pepto-Bismol available for sheep. I don't know. But I just keep going. I just keep going. I'm like, this is amazing. Maybe I'd frolic. Maybe I'd jump around. Maybe I'd run around. Maybe I'd just stay in one spot and eat an entire circle around me and then move to another circle. It's just a green pasture. It's like amazing. Everything a sheep could possibly want is right here all around me. And the shepherd says, just stop moving. Lay down. Relax. A number of years ago, a lady came to our church just absolutely stressed out by stuff going on at Purdue. She was in an academic program at Purdue that is understood by many to be one of the most rigorous programs. And she was abundantly stressed out. I mean, every, every, everything that could be going wrong in her academic life felt like it was going wrong in her academic life. And she came to this church and she started building a kind of a counseling relationship with me because someone that she had known and loved from her undergraduate school had recently been killed. And so she was just, her whole world was upside down. Her whole world was upside down. And I don't generally do counseling for women, and, but we had just finished preparing a coaching curriculum in the church. And I was like, well, I need to take someone through it. And so we met in coffee shops and public places. And it didn't matter that we were in these public places. She's telling me about all the, the, the dark emotions in her heart and how she just doesn't want to continue going on with life even. And so I'm trying to think to myself, do I need to refer her to professional counseling? Do I need to call the police? Do we, you know, what do we do? And it's just every time we got together to meet, the word of God would begin to do something in her heart and her eyes would begin to brighten and she would begin to have a a new sense of optimism and hope as a result of just us talking about the Bible. And we, we made a breakthrough at one point in time where I was talking to her about kind of her schedule and how she was budgeting her time. And we were talking about the principle of the Sabbath. 
And she was like, there is no way I can take a Sabbath. I'm married. I've got this schoolwork. I've got this other job stuff that I'm doing. And it was just such a stressful thing for her. She's like, there's no way I could take a whole day off. What are you, crazy? And I said, listen, just try it. And one week she made a commitment. She was just going to go 24 hours and do no schoolwork that 24 hours. And we met the next week. And she sat across the coffee table with, with me and she was like, I don't know what happened, but I got all my homework done. Like the previous week, she had been stressing out and never got anything done. That week, she took the Sabbath off. For her, on that week, it was a Sunday. She took it off and she's like, I got everything done. I said, well, do it next week. And from that point on, she decided to make a commitment. No, I'm just going to rest. Maybe it'll be a nap. Maybe it'll be running. Maybe it'll be spending time with my husband. Maybe it'll be whatever. I'm just going to rest. And isn't it true that God sometimes needs to force us to lie down and take a break? You see, God wants us, I believe, He wants us to be people who experience moments of peace. He gives us moments of peace. We just simply have to be willing to receive them. He's the good shepherd, and he wants to make sure you don't lack anything. So one of the things he gives us is simply moments of peace. David is writing this story about this sheep that is just absolutely at peace. There's so many things about our life that drain us. And we think that we can fill them up with more stuff. But it's the stress and it's the pain and it's the hardship and all this other stuff that is draining us. You know what's weird? We all know the research that if you look at your phone before you go to bed, you'll sleep worse. We all know that research, right? Every one of us has heard that report on some news broadcast or we've even seen it on Facebook. You're lying in bed, you're scrolling through your Facebook feed or some other social media thing, and a little thing pops up on your screen that says, new research shows that reading your phone in bed is bad for your sleep. And you're like, interesting, swipe, 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 swipe. And you just keep going. We know social media is bad for us. We know it's toxic. We know the way we're dealing with the world around us is bad and toxic. And yet we still think that the next thing might bring me some joy and fulfillment. We still think there's one thing just below the, below the screen. If I could just scroll up to that one, one magical one that's out there waiting for me. And the whole time Jesus is saying to you, lie down in some green pastures. Yeah, green pastures. There's grass everywhere. Just stop eating it. Lie down. And that's not all. God doesn't just want to sometimes tell you, stop He also wants to lead you. Did you see that? Lead me by streams of water. I want to read the next section for you. Pick it up at the second half of verse 3, and then we're also going to do verse 4. It says this, He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I wanted to do the first phrase by itself. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Just do that one by itself. But the problem was, 
The rod and the staff are used by a shepherd to guide the sheep. And so the guidance and the rod part are the same section. In fact, they they link to the previous section where it says, He leads me beside still waters. What God is doing, what the shepherd is doing for the sheep, is the shepherd isn't just making them lie down and taking a break. The shepherd is also taking them on the path. When I was a kid, this phrase, I memorized it, it goes, he, that he, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. And as a kid, righteousness for me always meant, you know, obeying the rules, obeying the God rules, not running in church, you know, being, being kind to the people around you, sharing your toys, not saying bad words, not being mean to your sister. Righteousness was all of these things about, you know, doing the right thing. And it just felt again, like a burden. Oh no, I have to, I have to be righteous in my life. It's just such a burden. But again, the modern translation really pulls out something amazing here that you got to see. He guides me along the right paths. Listen, how many times in my life have I wondered which direction was right? You know, I face a fork in the road. I'm like, which one is the right one? God, which path is the right path for me to choose? Which decision is the right path, right decision for me to make? In, in most of our lives, in most of our lives, if we knew God's specific will for a specific decision, most of us would be like, yes, I'm totally taking that one. Right? The, the, the fact that we view God's righteousness as somehow a burden is fascinating to me when we will on the one hand say, oh no, I don't want to be one of those righteous goody two-shoes, but God, can you please help me choose which car to buy? And it's like, I want God to be involved in my stupid decisions and I don't want God to be involved in any of the important ones. That he guides me in the paths, the right paths for his name's sake. I want you to know a couple things of what God is doing for you. Because the right path is scary. Did you notice? He leads me beside still waters. He guides me in the right paths. And sometimes those paths are going to take me through the darkest valley. The valley of the shadow of death. What path are you on right now? Where is God leading you right now? Is God leading you on one of these nice still water paths? Or is God taking you into one of these dark valley places? Sometimes we blame the circumstance. God, where are you? I'm now in this valley. But God guided you there. He's the shepherd who leads you sometimes beside still waters. And sometimes he's going to lead you right in to the middle of this dark valley. And what's fascinating to us is that we think there's a difference between the streams and the valley. We think there's a difference. We think the valley is bad and the stream is good. We think the valley is annoying and the stream is peaceful. But it's not that case. It's just that the valley has more darkness and the stream has more wetness. God is leading me in both. And if he's leading me, as the psalmist can say, I will fear no evil. There are three things, four things really, that I want to share with you about why you can fear no evil. Here they are. Number one, he is with me. 
The reason you can go through the dark valley and not fear any evil is that he is with you. Now, if he is with me, then that means the one who holds the rod and staff. That means the one who can provide anything. That means the one who knows the path, knows the right path, and knows that the right path sometimes goes through the dark place. He is with me. The one who took me there is with me. The one who plans to lead me out of it is with me. Everything about my shepherd, if I can trust my shepherd, then he being with me changes all of my fear. There's nothing to fear. I have been utterly fascinated, completely fascinated in the last couple of years, how often I have seen the language, heard the language of, seen the language of fear rise up among believers. I'll just ask you, have you been afraid of anything recently? Have you been afraid of something? Has something come your way? Let me ask you the the question in a better way. Has anyone tried to leverage your fear to get something from you? Has any politician recently told you that if you vote for them, good things will happen, and if you don't vote for them, bad things will happen? My son ran for president in his high school. It was a mock kind of presidency, a mock trial. And in the process of this whole this election, this mock election thing, in the process of all that, he made a television commercial advertising himself. And it was amazing. It was brilliant. One of the things he said in his TV commercial was, if you vote for me, no tigers will attack the school. Like, it won't, it won't happen. And he didn't, he didn't say that if you didn't vote for him, tigers would attack the school, but he just simply said, listen, my anti-tiger matrix has already been working in the school to prevent tiger attacks. Tiger attacks this year are down 100%. And so as a result, if you vote for me, no tigers will attack this school. And, you know, if you have any doubt, just look around you. Have you seen any tigers recently? No, it's all working. And I'm just, I was amazed at his brilliance, both to be comedic and also to understand how politicians work. And it's not just politicians, it's all over our society. People around us are trying to make you scared of something. A number of years ago, I was here uh, in, a, in a group of pastors And one of the pastors was getting really upset about something. He started sending out a bunch of emails. And the one email he sent to me was an article about a Muslim mosque that was being built in New York. Not New York City, but New York State somewhere. Some community in New York State was getting a Muslim mosque, and the people who lived in that community were upset. And they were fighting to get the city to prevent the mosque from being built in that town. And my pastor friend was sending out emails to other pastor friends that he knew talking about how we needed to come alongside these people in New York because if we didn't support these people in New York against the mosque, then something like that could happen here in our town and we could get a mosque in our town built in someone's neighborhood. And it was just, it was just if we don't act, then this bad thing is going to happen. The same pastor sent me an email a couple years later about a, a family in Arizona that had a Bible study that then was being stopped by their local homeowners association. And it was like, oh no, the Bible study is being stopped by the Homeowners Association. It's coming for you too. The world is coming for you. It's going to come to your doors. You, Christian, need to be afraid. You need to get involved in the political process and vote for the people. You need to be afraid. Today it's even worse. 
Today it's Christians, take up arms. Who knows, the government's going to come and they're going to come after you. And so you need to be, there's even talk among Christians about what's the proper way to use violence in order to protect your Christian rights. And I just want to say something. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Even if I walk through like the darkest valley, I'm going to fear nothing. You know why? Because he's with me. More than that, he guides me. He's got this rod, staff, two items, one item, I don't know what it is, but he's got this thing and he's nudging me around with it and I'm going through a dark valley. I can't see where I'm going. I don't know what's happening. But he's just, if I'm heading too far to the right, he's just going to give me a little nudge. If I'm heading too far to the left, he's going to give me a nudge. Some days that hurts a little bit. Some days it feels a little spanky on the back end. But every now and then I'm like, no, no, made sense. I needed to go in that direction. He's guiding me. Great job, God. Thank you for that. But it's not just that. He's not just guiding me. He's guiding me. That's the second one I want you to write down there. It's both are his guidance, but I want you to know. My temptation is I pray for God to guide those other people. God, would you change his heart? Would you change her heart? Would you change them? Would you do something different in them? Would you make them change their mind? Would you do all that other stuff? God, change all those other people. I don't want to go through this dark valley anymore, so make all those other people shiny. Make all those other people bright and great and awesome. But God says, no, no, I'm your shepherd. I'm going to guide you. And then, of course, the last thing written here is that he protects me, even though it's only sometimes. See, the, the thing about the rod is that the rod can be used as a protective weapon. But did you notice that the shepherd David describes here doesn't have a sling? David was a shepherd who killed Goliath by first knocking him out with a sling. David goes into that battle knowing he's got a sling. The sling is the weapon of the shepherd. The rod is primarily to guide the sheep. It can be used as a weapon against other things, but that's not its primary purpose. I find it interesting that David, when he talks about his shepherd, doesn't talk about a shepherd who's got a weapon. I mean, it's possibly kind of a weapon, but not primarily. So yeah, he'll protect me, but maybe not the way I expect. But here at the end of the story, it comes clear. I want to show you this. This is brilliant and yet scary. Look at this. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can quote that maybe if you've memorized it, or you can hear it, and it kind of washes over you, and you don't fully grasp it, but I want to show you a couple things that are going on in this passage that I think are amazing. And the biggest thing that's going on in this passage is the fact that everything here is backwards from the way I want it. Everything here is backwards from the way I want it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's not the way I want it. The way I want it is I want to prepare a table for myself because I'm in charge of my life. 
I want to choose what I eat. I want to go to the buffet and grab all the things that are special to me. I'm preparing the table for myself. And I'm going to invite all my friends over to honor me because my friends know how great I am. And when I prepare the table and I invite my friends over, they're going to be like, oh, Jeff, this is so good. How did you make this thing? This is amazing. Oh, these ribs are so wonderful. I wish I could make ribs like that. Jeff, you are the best human being I have ever met in my life, and I'm so glad you invited me to this feast. That's the life I want to have, right? But this is God setting up a table. God's preparing the table, and it's not just a table like a table of safety. It's a table in the presence of his enemies. These are the people he hates. These are the people he doesn't want anything to do with. And God says, no, 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 they get to eat here too. And it's like, what are you doing, God? I don't understand the shepherd who will let my enemies come in here to this place and join me around this table and you make food for both of us? What is happening here? Now, yes, God can make people peaceful. He can take people who were your enemies and turn them into your friends. But there's a, there's a phase in there. There's a phase in there before God makes them become your friends that you have to be willing to accept that. I have to be willing to accept that. These are the people I can't stand and now I'm eating with them? I don't want this to work this way. God anoints my head with oil. That means I have to just sit there and let it happen. What's the picture here? Is a picture of a shepherd who is doing everything for his sheep. And a sheep who's doing nothing. So much of our lives, we're the people who want to go and go and get and get and accomplish and win and have the victory. And it says two things there at the end that shock me. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I don't want that either. I want goodness and love to go in front of me so that by the time I get there, it's already a place of goodness and love. I want goodness and love in front of me. Goodness and love should be here. And then I go to the place that's already good and loving. And then goodness goes further and I go to the next place. I want to bounce from good place to good place to good place. I want to bounce from love to love to love. But if love and goodness are following me, then that means I'm at the leading edge of this. I'm the one who's in front of all this. I'm the one who's going into the dark place. And when I leave, it's brighter than it was when I got there. When I leave, goodness and love have followed me. God, I don't want that kind of life for myself. I want the life of comfort and ease. I really liked that laying down in green pastures thing, but now I'm a little bit nervous about what it means for goodness and love to be behind me all the time. And God says, hang on a second. I'm going to make you a promise. One of these days, you will dwell in my house forever. Surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Write this down. God brings the honor and the blessing to me. What I'd like to leave with you today is just a a little bit of a question. When you think through Psalm 23, you think through the fact that David is understanding God as his shepherd and God is the one who brings all this stuff to him. God is the one who provides for him. God is the one who guides him. God is the one who brings these things to him and he, the sheep, just has to receive it. When you, when you hear stuff like that, what I want to ask you is to ask yourself this question. 
What do I want? Go back to verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. What is it about your life that makes it hard for you to believe that first phrase? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Ask yourself the question in reverse. What do I want? Now, granted, some of you at the end of this message, you're like, well, I can't want anything. I, I shouldn't want anything. I shall not want. That's the, that's the rule there. I, I shouldn't want. It's the Sunday school answer. I sh- but some of you should just be honest with yourself. I need to be honest with myself. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I still do want. But check this out. If the principle goes like this, God is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And the reality goes like this, I still want stuff. Then guess what? This is amazing. Guess what? The fact that I want stuff just means there's something I haven't yet received. Not because God hasn't given it, but because I haven't opened myself up to it. I believe this is true. I think every one of our wants is a signpost pointing us to something that God is already providing. People have all kinds of wants and desires. You might want something. You might have an addiction towards something. You might have a desire for something. But every one of these wants is just a place where we have desired a thing different from what God is already providing for us. I'm convinced that the way Satan works in our hearts is to make us see our wants and miss the link between our wants and God's provision. God is providing something. I missed the thread. And so as a result, I decide I'm going to go somewhere else. There in the Garden of Eden, there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Eve looks at the tree. And the text tells us that when she sees that the tree was good for food, so all the trees were good, were good for food. God had said to them, you may eat from any one of these trees. They're all good for food. When she sees that this one is good for food, doesn't matter. All of them are good for food. And when she sees that it is desirable for attaining wisdom, doesn't matter. God has already given them instructions. He's already spoken directly to Adam. If they want to know literally anything in the universe, they could just ask God. So, so what if this one's good for food? So what if this one is, is able to bring you knowledge and wisdom? God himself can do that. He's already provided it once. He'll continue to provide it more. The thing that we have in our lives is that God is the God of provision and love. And we stand in a little bubble of want and we say, I'm not going to pay attention to the things God has provided. I'm not going to pay attention to the things God has provided. I'm not going to pay attention to the things God has provided. I want this thing right here and it's probably going to be great. And all we have to do is be like, you know what? I think the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Here's a thought. Here's a thought. What we've just talked about is, I think, the difference between religion and trust. The difference between religion and faith. Religion says, I have a vending machine God. I do all the things and he'll respond to me. Faith says, I'm just going to let God be God, and I'm going to live in the joy of letting him do that. We're going to end our time together this morning with a song called Shepherd, and it's just talking about how we're going to let God take our hands and lead us. He's going to be the good shepherd. He's going to lead us in his path, and we're going to let him do that. 
And I want us to be people who, as of today and on from this place, take this mentality and this mindset that I'm just going to rest my heart in the shepherd. He's going to be my shepherd. I lack nothing. He's my everything. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.